Hi, welcome to another episode of Infinite Leaders Live. My name is Lewis Keynes and our why is simple, to be better educators and to be better humans. We want to support and encourage infinite learning for everyone, regardless of role, rank or responsibility in whatever organisation you work in, for you and the people around you to be willing to listen, learn and get better. I'm joined as ever by my pal Alan. How are you doing, Alan? Yeah, good, Lewis. Thanks. And as you might have seen on my Twitter, I've been uh, learning to skateboard today. 43-year-old dad of two learning for the first time to skateboard. So let's just hope I'm not going to be in hospital over the next few weeks. <laughs> but pr proud to partner with Tsunami as always. And, and thank you for the Andrew Chambers, the CEO at Tsunami, for providing us with our kit. And we will continue to focus on the things you don't get taught at university or on any courses, real life lessons from real life people with real life experience. And as you know, we record live uh, and we're learning as we go along. We practice what we preach. And if you've got feedback to give us, we'd love to receive that, um, whether that's constructive or whether that's praise. Please get in touch. You can find us on Instagram, YouTube, Twitter and at theinfinitelearners.com. So listen, learn, share and let's dive in, Alan. Yeah, get your pens and paper ready. There's going to be some absolute gems of wisdom coming out of the show today. So John Gwynne Jones was brought up in a Welsh mining community and has spent the last 33 plus years living and working in Southeast Asia. He's currently the CEO of the Federation of British Schools in Asia, having dedicated over 23 long and long years of service to St. Christopher's International School Penang as the principal. John has been awarded a leadership award by Julia Gillard, the first female Prime Minister of Australia for his dedicated leadership service in international education. He has been invited to numerous global and regional educational conferences as guest and keynote speaker, including the Education World Forum. In December 2019, John was awarded an MBE by Her Majesty the Queen for his services to British education overseas. So John, welcome to the show. Mining village in Wales to the tropics of Southeast Asia. Tell us a bit about that journey. Well, you know, thanks for the lovely introduction. I feel quite humble, actually. Um, and I loved your introduction about the work you do, you know, listen and learn. That's such an important message as well. Yeah, you know, growing up in a, a small mining community in West Wales, uh, I think that prepared me so well for the future ahead of me, you know, because in a mining community, you know, we were six children. My father was a coal miner. Uh, he actually died underground when I was nine years old. Um, so, you know, we always had to work hard for whatever we got, you know, and we always appreciated whatever we had as well. And, and you know, growing up in that kind of culture, that kind of environment, uh, you never forget those roots. Uh, so, you know, going into the teaching profession, that was quite an interesting step for me because uh, I, you know, I, my father said to, to my mum, I said, none of my, neither of my two sons will work underground. And the only way that would happen is you had to go through good education, you know, study hard at school. Now, for my brother, it was quite easy. You know, he was quite an academic. For me, it was the opposite. You know, I would have loved to have been a, a coal miner like my father. I would have loved to be in amongst the men and the lads. So for me to study at school, it was always hard work, you know? So, so I was one of these that was always out playing, loved my sports. So my mother always used to worry about me, you know? Um, so when I finished my education in school, you know, I did in those days, it was O-levels. 
I said to my uncle, there you are, done it. I've done my all levels, finished. And he said to me, he said, right, okay, what's next? And I thought, what do you mean, what's next? <laughs> he said, well, you've got a choice. You either continue your education, A levels, or you go out to work. And I said, well, I'm not going to go back to school. So he said, right, it's work then. And of course, I thought, work? <laughs> what am I going to do? And I, I ended up working in a bank. Um, in, in those days, the Midland Bank, which is now HSBC, and loved it. You know, I worked, instead of doing my A-levels, I worked two years in a bank and really enjoyed it and grew up, you know. And then my brother was a teacher. And every time he used to come back on holidays, I thought, oh, wow, you know, what he's doing sounds fantastic. And he suggested, hey, listen, why don't you apply to become a teacher? And I said, well, look, I haven't done my A-levels. And he said, well, you know, what you've done for the last two years is equivalent to any study of A-levels. So I put an application in to be a teacher and I was accepted. And the rest is history, really. You know, so that was a, an interesting start for me in the profession, really. Wow, I, I didn't know that. Now, John, you're a proud Welshman, a very proud Welshman, a big uh, supporter of Welsh rugby, very proud of your roots. Tell me why you've decided to spend the last 33 years in Southeast Asia. What drew you over and what's kept you here? Again, uh, uh, you know, when I started teaching, oh, you know, I, I, if, if someone was to say to me now, you know, if you had my time over again, would you do the same? I would say with 100%, yes, I would, you know, because I've loved it. I've loved every minute of the profession. And... Starting as a teacher, there wasn't enough hours in the day, you know, you do all the extracurricular activities. And in those days, you know, to, to be promoted was quite a challenge, you know, you had to wait your time. It was always seniority, you know, it was always there were guys who'd been around for 20 plus years who'd get in those days the old scale two post. Um, and then, you know, I was very fortunate. I worked in a great school with, uh, with great colleagues. And, you know, because of my passion, I was very fortunate to be promoted at a reasonably young age. And I was deputy principal of the largest school in, in our local authority at the age of 25. And that's that. I'll come back to that later because that was an interesting story. Um, and again, you know, I was totally out of my depth. And I, I you know, I, again, I learned and I, you know, it took me a couple of years to really get to grips with that role. Um, and then, of course, I was shortlisted for a headship and I didn't get it. And I felt I did enough to get it. I was so disappointed. And my sister was working in Hong Kong. So, you know, she spoke to me, said, come out here. I know a lot of teachers and, you know, it's a great lifestyle. And I thought, oh, so I applied for a job in Hong Kong. Fortunately to get it, it was a British school um, of the British Services School, you know, the British Army School. And then my local authority seconded me um, for three years to take up the job. So I had nothing to lose, you know, so I had a protected salary to go back. So I thought, what the heck? And then 35 years later, I'm still overseas. <laughs> <laughs> that first posting, John, how did you... How did you explain that to the people back home? Because I, we have this conversation, loads, don't we, Lewis, where they go, well, 
what, why have you gone overseas? What about your mortgage? What about your pension? What about this? And, and back in the back in the eighties, when you were there, that conversation must have been even even bigger. So how did you approach that? And, and what were your what was your sort of rationale there? Well, you know, Alan, it, as I said, I was fortunate to be seconded on a protected salary because, you know, the director of education in my authority was very forward thinking. He said, look, what you'll do out there in, for in the next three years, come back to our local authority and what you will share with everyone will be amazing. And he was absolutely spot on, you know. So I had nothing to lose, really. Um, so I thought, oh, what the heck? So I was very fortunate to be in that kind of situation. But of course, once I sort of adjusted to going overseas, imagine going from West Wales, you know, a, a country town like Kamarven, to the dizzy heights of Hong Kong. You know, it was a, a real eye-opener. I'll never forget on the plane going out, you know, um, on British Airways, flying, or British Caledonia in, that day, in those days. And we stopped in Dubai, and I always researched, I always did my homework, and Dubai had the cheapest duty-free in the world, you know? So we landed in Dubai, got off the plane, on a bus, into duty-free, and of course, I bought about six bottles of liquor, you know? All right. Yeah, you know <laughs> and I'd had a few drinks on the plane, so I was very happy. <laughs> got back on the plane, on the bus, and suddenly so, someone heard me talking, and they said, Oh, are you John? I said, yes. Oh, you're coming to work in our school. And then I am carrying a couple of carrier bags with all these bottles of liquor. And I said, oh, you fit in, all right? <laughs> and I did. So that was a great introduction to some of my colleagues. So, all right. So did you go there? Did you go there as the head, John? I went as a deputy head there. Um, so again, you know, talking about leadership, you know, I went from West Wales. Um, Coming back to that point when I was promoted as a young guy, as a deputy head, you know, the, the reason I got promoted so young was nobody wanted to work with the head. <laughs> the head of that school, <laughs> it was the biggest primary school in, in our local authority. And, you know, he, the head of the school was a big friend of the head that I worked for. I was a scale two teacher. So when the job was re-advertised, I said to my head, I said, oh, I see Johnstown's been re-advertised. And my head looked at me and said, you're not thinking about that? Oh, I said, no, 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 I'm too young. And then after he, he came back to me, he said, hey, John, you know, I've talked to the head and he's a good friend of mine. I said, I know. And he's very interested in your application. And he said, but let me warn you now, you know, if he had God himself working for him, he'd find so many faults in him, he said. So... Just warning you. So I went, I was shortlisted. I went for the interview. And, you know, they, it was the hardest five years I've had in my life. Yet again, working with a head like that, you know, in terms of totally sort of micromanaging, or, you know, in charge of everything. I learned so much, you know, I learned so much. And, of course, the reason I got the job, as I said, you know, nobody wanted to apply for the job because his reputation went ahead of him. So then when I went to Hong Kong as a, as a deputy there, the head there was the opposite. You know, he said, John, get on with it. Whatever you want, you just do it. Just leave me alone. <laughs> get everybody off my back sort of thing. So it was literally the opposite, you know. So 
having those experiences, you know, in terms of leadership, it really, you can't, you can't read about that. You've got to experience it, you know? And then, you know, developing my own leadership style then, you know, you try and model a little bit on both, really, you know, where you are fairly authoritative in terms of uh, asserting what you want. And yet again, you know, you facilitate the people that you work with, you know. Um, so I was very fortunate to have two mentors that were totally opposite. Tell us the, the contrast, the big differences between being, as you described, micromanaged, which, you know, you, speak, you spoke um, quite positively about in, in a way there. And most people think of micromanaging as a really negative way of being managed or managing people versus that real freedom to go and do as you wish and, and, and to leave the head alone in Hong Kong. Tell us what you learned from those experiences and, and which one you prefer. Well, that, that's a great question. You know, um, the, the first head, you know, in, in terms of, uh, I had the greatest respect for him. You know, everybody feared him because, you know, he, give you an example, right? You know, I, I, you know in those days, as a deputy of the biggest school in our local authority, I was a year six class teacher as well. I had never less than 30 children in my class, you know, and oh, the pressures you were under. So, you know, having a head like that then take a little bit out of you, you know, it was, it was incredible. Um, but, wow, well, you know, he knew everything. And, you know, uh, he was so proud of his school. And, you know, it was his school. In, in every respect, you know. Um, and, you know, I'd share a story about him. You know, we, we, we had our first HMI inspector inspections. You know, they talk about Ofsted now. HMI was something everyone feared. You know, Her Majesty's inspectorates coming to your school. Oh, my goodness. And I'll never forget, we had this uh, HMI inspection. And the, the, about a week before the inspection, the lead inspector would come and make a courteous call, you know. So the head said to me, John, um, when he arrives, I want you in on this meeting. And I thought, oh, God, you know, I'm, uh, I, I was so, so fearful of this lead HMI coming. So anyway, he arrived and we sat in the head's office. And, you know, this lead HMI was a lovely guy, you know, oh, so pleasant, uh, so graceful. He came in, I said, and he said, Mr. Bowen, I've heard wonderful things about your school. I can't wait to come next, ne next week, uh, you know, to experience what a wonderful environment you've developed here. And I sat there and thought, oh, wow, <laughs> this is great. And then he turned around and he said to the lead HMI, he said, um, can I say something to Mr. Evans? And he said, yes, of course, Mr. Bowen. Um, I have to tell you, you are not qualified to come in and inspect my school. <laughs> I sat there that did I hear that properly or what? <laughs> you know, this is Mr. Evans, so I said, excuse me, Mr. Boyd? Um, yes, you heard me, Mr. Evans. Um, you know, you are bringing the team in next week, and I have to say, uh, you are not qualified to come in here to inspect my school. And this guy said, oh, I'm... Um, I don't quite understand, Mr. Byrne. What do you mean? I said, well, you know, you, you understand English, don't you? <laughs> and I, oh, my God. And he, he turned around and said, oh, yes, I do, Mr. Bowen. And can you uh, explain why you make that statement? And, you know, he, the Trump card. He turned around and said, 
Well, you sent your CV to me in advance. Yes, we do always do that, Mr. Bowen. Well, I've looked at your CV and I don't see anywhere showing me that you've worked in a primary school. So tell me, how are you qualified to come in and inspect my school where you've never worked in a school like this? So that's what I mean. <laughs> well, this Mr. Evans, he, he couldn't answer that, you know? So that gives you an example of the kind of leadership, you know, you're so, so clear in terms of his views and so right, right? And, uh, you know, one of the things I liked about him is, you know, in leadership, uh, uh, you know, we had um, Sir John Jones come and do a keynote with us. And one of the great qualities he said was, was courageous, you know, being convicted to what you believe in. And that, that was a great example. And, you know, he finished the meeting with his inspector saying, I'm telling you now, I've told all my staff that if any of your team come and challenge anything in this school, I will have you in my office and you will need to explain yourself. <laughs> so did they inspect the school in the end? What? <laughs> did, did they inspect the school in the end or was there a different team brought in? They, they came and, you know, the school was, and it was an outstanding school, you know, and, it, and his leadership was highlighted as being a, a total strength of the school, you know, but you know, imagine having that kind of introduction, you know, and then, you know, when I, when, when I, and you know, he knew every child, he knew every parent. Um, and I'll never forget saying to him, you know, um, as I said, I was a year six class teacher and I, this first school I worked in was just a junior school, a key stage two school in these days. So I'd never had experience of early years or, or key stage one. And, you know, it took about six months for me to have enough courage to approach him to say, can I take a whole school assembly, you know? And, he's, and he looked at me and said, you think you're ready? <laughs> I said, yes, I am, of course I am. <laughs> so I said, okay, you take assembly on Monday. So I took a whole school assembly, you know, from two years old up to 11. And do you know what? These two, three-year-olds... I prepared an assembly that was pitched for sort of four to 11, uh, year four to year six children. So these two, three-year-olds, after five minutes, they were bored to death, you know? So there, there I'm standing and these kids are running all over the place. And I don't know what the hell to do, you know? So I'm still talking as if I'm talking to the year six kids. And then after the assembly came, came up to me and said, how do you think that went then? <laughs> 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 oh, you carry on with this, please. Uh, you know, I don't need to run anymore now. <laughs> so, you know, he, he, he protected me to an extent, you know, in terms of my inexperience. So, so you know, that, that I, you know, that I have such fond memories of my time there in terms of preparing me possibly to be the leader that you wouldn't want to be, you know, but still having experience it to have the, as I said, the courage at times to get out of your comfort zone and totally believe that what you're doing is right, you know? Do, do you um, think in many ways that was really good leadership? Because like you said yourself, you're quite inexperienced and maybe he saw that you needed a, a firm hand and a close watch just to start to get things right and build your confidence. And then when you had that and you moved to Hong Kong, there was that opportunity where somebody said, I'll leave it to you, you do it. And you felt maybe actually you could 
Did he set you up really well for that? Yes, he did. Yes, he did. And, you know, as Alan said, you know, when I, when I went overseas, you know, every year I came back to Wales, I would spend so much time with him, you know, because he, he just wanted to hear what it was like working in Hong Kong, what was it like working internationally, you know, and, and I always used to spend so much time with him. Um, but yet again, I wouldn't want to have been a leader like he was, you know, because he couldn't shrug that um, micromanagement style out of him. You know, he was, he was so passionate about his school that he couldn't let go, you know, the, he, he was beyond that. So, um, you know, but yet again, as I said, as I said, you know, he protected me well, he taught me so much, but I, I wouldn't want to be a leader like that. And as I said, you know, I, I loved talking to him every time I came back. He would sit for hours and listen to this experience that I shared with him. And he absolutely loved it, you know. And, um, and you know, you know, I was a big rugby player in those days. And he used to hate it, you know, because he always used to worry. Oh, he's going to break a leg. He'll be off school for a couple of months. And, you know, he's that kind of person, you know, who wanted to con control everything. <laughs> so, so then John your next experience in Hong Kong then is obviously the antithesis of that tell us tell us what you learned from that experience well you know suddenly I'm working with a head now that literally delegates everything you know uh, get on with it had total confidence in you um, and basically gave you the role that you were supposed to take you know um, and if anything too much freedom you know um, so he would be, he was a great head in terms of, especially, uh, you know, the administration, um, keeping uh, the, you know, the people above you uh, away from you so you could get on with a job. Uh, the unfortunate thing with him was, you know, he was so divorced from what actually went on in the coal face, you know, um, the students themselves, he didn't know many of the children. Because um, he, he felt that's not my role, you know, that's, that's you're the head deputy, you take care of the, your colleagues and the, and the children, you know, and I'll be the one that will just make sure that we tick all the boxes and meet the expectations and everything else. But again, you know, I had the greatest respect for him in so much that he did give me that uh, authority and confidence and and, you know, delegated, you know, I was able to do so much under his leadership. Um, so a, a totally opposite style, really. So after yeah, it's, two, two contrasting heads like that, did you, did you move on to Penang after that, John? Yes. You know, um, well, it's interesting. When, <laughs> again, the, the head in Hong Kong, we, there were two deputy heads there. And um, one was uh, there before myself. And she was female. I came there. And, you know, a, a little bit of a, a, a gender issue there. Because, you know, when I arrived and he was so pleased to see me because uh, he didn't get on with the, with the other deputy, you know. And, and um, so when he left, she was appointed as acting head. Um, so <laughs> it was then, right, it's my turn now. So she would give me hell then because, you know, for the time that I was there, he, in some ways, he, 
he overlooked her in preference to me. So when she was appointed acting head then, she thought, right, it's my turn to get it back now. You know? so, so I had a, quite a difficult time with her. Uh, to the point, that's, that's when I decided then, I said, well, I, I can't work under this kind of leadership. Um, so I applied for a, my first headship then in Penang. And I, I was quite fortunate to get that. And, you know, I, I felt then that I had all the experiences that I needed to be able to take on my first headship, you know. So like, it's like you're a busy man. Someone's after you, John. Yeah, I th it's my wife, actually. <laughs> oh, it always is. Always yeah. is. It? They're, well, they're always she doesn't need to worry about, about me because I'm not going anywhere. <laughs> <laughs> Just, I mean, quarantine. <laughs> yes, that's right. <laughs> well, well, I've just been doing some maths, John. Actually, I just, I've, I've just worked. I've worked under seven heads over the course of the last oh, twenty. Right, right, right. From UK to Spain to Qatar to the Philippines to Saudi, and 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 your experiences there are very similar. I've worked under such difference and contrast in leadership styles, and I'm just wondering there, just just for the viewers, John, whether you could pick out. What are the key points then that make a really good leader? Oh, there are so many, you know, there are so many. You know, like, like you were... Three, John. Um, top, three? top three would be convicted and being courageous, as I mentioned earlier, you know, being out of your comfort zone um, and being able to handle that well. Uh, the second one, as you you know, as you focus on it, a, a good listener, you know, to be able to be approachable and 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 listening to people who um, oh god, my, my wife is desperate to get hold of me. Let me just tell her I'm in a meeting. I'm in a meeting. I'm in a meeting. Okay, can I call you back? Yes, sorry about that. <laughs> that, that. That's fine. You've got to keep her happy, John. So <laughs> the other one would be to be a good listener, you know, and, and, and have your door open so people would feel comfortable to approach you and talk to you and share with you and for you to celebrate what they're doing as well. Um, and then if there was a third one, the third one would be to lead by example. You know, uh, everybody looks up at the boss. Um, so if you were to gain the confidence and the respect of your colleagues, um, you'd have to earn that. And, you know, and to do that, you'd have to show them that you have the qualities uh, to be able to lead, you know? Yeah, there are three belters there, John. What about your non-negotiables, John? What, what, where do you draw that line in the stand in terms of behaviours? Um, you know, like you have in schools, you know, there, there are areas where there's zero tolerance, you know, and um, likewise in leadership, you know, there are, there are certain areas that you have to stand firm on. You know, at the end of the day, in education, it's all about the students. It's all about the children. And, you know, you don't compromise that. So, you know, if you have colleagues that don't meet the expectations um, and are failing the students, um, then, you know, that's something that you have to be quite strong about. In, and, you know, using the evidence you have, 
uh, to be able to step in and say, no, you know, this is not acceptable. Because it's the children and it's the students that suffer at the end of the day then, you know, that's what it's all about, really. Um, So you're not in the job to be popular. You know, again, I've had so many experiences of working with people where they do want to be popular leaders. You know, they do want to be the friends of their colleagues that they lead. And, and of course, yeah, you do want to be, but often that doesn't work, you know, especially when you have to establish your authority. So, you know, um, yeah, there are certain areas, you know, especially when it comes to the children and the students that you don't compromise on, you know? Yeah, so, so John, 23 years as a, a head teacher at St. Christopher's in Penang, Give, give us a few indications or a few stories of some of the things you learned along the way. Um, in terms of working internationally, it's, it's been an a, a, amazing experience. And, you know, one of the things that you always have to remember is, you know, you're always a visitor in the country that you're working in. So when you employ teachers, you constantly remind them of that, you know, that, hey, we're the foreigners, you know, you're not in the UK anymore and things are not done the way that they are done in the UK, you know, so you've stepped away from that. So never forget that. And, and therefore, you know, emphasizing then the need to show respect, you know, because often um, people come out with a little bit of arrogance thinking, well, you know, in the UK, we did this, do it like this. And, Oh, you know, look at the local people here, you know, they don't have a clue and, a little bit disrespectful. So, you know, you must emphasize to people, look, um, embrace the culture, you know, enjoy the experience, um, fully engross yourself to where you are. And you'll gain much more from that, you know, rather than compare it or have different expectations. So that's an important message to get across, particularly when you're employing new teachers, you know, to to prepare them well in terms of what they're coming to. Yeah, fully, fully agree. We, we, we see that in abundance uh, in Manila and in, and in Qatar. You have to embrace the local culture. So what advice would you give to, to say, teachers who are looking to go internationally? What would you say that's given you as a person, the fact that you've worked so long overseas compared to then being back in the UK? Um, I would, I, you know, I, I would say to teachers in the case, you know, don't hesitate, go for it. You know, I've never regretted one minute of it. And, and be prepared, as I mentioned earlier, do your homework, you know, go with your eyes wide open um, in terms of where you're going to work, as far as the school is concerned, uh, what kind of cultures they gather, what information you can And likewise, in terms of the country that you're moving in, you know, Alan, you're in Saudi Arabia, you know, uh, Lewis, you're in Malaysia. Be aware of of the environment you're going in terms of the culture, the people, the languages, uh, the religion, um, so that when you get there, then there's no surprises. And then, you know, be prepared for the fact that, you know, you're stepping up. That's one thing I'm, I'm so proud of international education because it is a huge step up. You know, uh, you talked earlier about 
uh, writing a book about education in Sheffield, for example, you know, you, you look at, you look internationally, look at the schools that you've worked in. They're outstanding schools, you know. Uh, and, you know, one of the great things, you know, when my brother was a teacher and he eventually became a head, so when I would come back and share with him the experiences of working internationally, he couldn't believe it. And, you know, uh, one of the great things about leading an international school is all the teachers that work for you, they're on contracts. You know, in UK, you've got a job for life and, and unless you do something absolutely stupid, right? Whereas internationally, you're on a two-year contract. If you don't perform, you're gone, you know? Um, so, you know, that, that's another aspect that really puts pressure on people then to make a mark, you know, to, to prove themselves. And, you know, you know yourselves in the schools you've worked in, the quality of people that you work alongside, you know, is incredible, the standards. So, you know, that's one thing that I really enjoyed about working internationally, you know, that you've always worked in schools and with colleagues that, wow, you know, it, it really has a wow factor to it, you know. Yeah, and John, I just want to touch on some of the work that you're doing now. After 23 years in, uh, in Penang, you moved on and you've got, there's a couple of projects going on at the moment, isn't there? <clears throat> I want to touch on the, the Room to Read project that you, you started in, in Sri Lanka, I believe, and then the executive headship in Laos and now chief executive officer uh, at Forbesia and, and, and where I, I work with you um, and, and we try and do what we can for PE and sport in the region. Tell us what you've learned from those roles and how they came about. Well, you know, teaching historically is, is, you know, you don't go into teaching to earn big money, although internationally the packages that schools are offering are quite attractive, but, you know, it's a passion. It's giving yourself, and that, that's something that's quite important in the profession. Um, you know, you always give yourself in terms of educating the next generation and seeing your students grow up to be great global citizens. But also at the same time, you know, always, you know, international schools, students in those schools are, you know, quite privileged. Their parents are paying fees. Um, so making sure that they also learn um, what it's like where there are hardships. You know, as I said, you know, growing up as a coal miner's son, you know, we came from a quite a poor background. Um, and making sure that in, in education, um, students and staff are always committed to, say, community service. Um, so it was a wonderful gift, actually, that I had. You know, when I retired... My first retirement from St. Christopher's in Penang, um, my, my older son, as a farewell gift to me, um, you know, sponsored a school in Sri Lanka, in the Wartorn village in Sri Lanka. He built a school and he named the school after me because of my dedication to, to education. You know, I couldn't have had a, a better gift, really. Um, and then, of course, you know, I went to Laos. <laughs> Wow, you know, you know, you talk about learning, you know, lifelong learners. You know, I retired in Penang, had 24 wonderful years leading St. Christopher's School. Uh, and, and I knew when my sell-by date was, you know, I knew when to leave and I, I felt I left in a, on a high, you know. 
And suddenly, two weeks later, I'm brought out of retirement to go to Laos. Well, you know, nobody's nobody's heard of Laos. So, you know, it, and of course, it was my first experience in a proprietor school, you know, a school that had an owner. And I was very fortunate, the fact that if it doesn't work, I'll just pack it up, you know, because I didn't need to work. Well, what I learned five years in Laos, in some ways, puts the rest to shame. You know, uh, I worked with an entrepreneur lady and it was, you know, 100 miles an hour. You know, I brought the ideas and she said, yes, yes, yes. And, you know, the things that I learned from her in terms of entrepreneur skills. You know, give you a good example. You know, I worked in St. Christopher's in Penang for 24 years. And one of the things I always wanted for the school was a swimming pool. And, you know, we had money in the bank. We had an area in the school field to put a 25-meter swimming pool. Did I ever get that? No way. Not-for-profit school. Oh, you know, so conservative. You know, protect the parents' money. Oh, you know, it was too much. I went to Laos. I said to the owner there, oh, it'd be great to have a swimming pool. You know, in Laos, there's only one public swimming pool. And it's a swimming pool you probably wouldn't want to swim in either, (laughs) for obvious reasons. So I said, we need a swimming pool. And I gave her all the reasons why. And she said to me, I said, yeah, good idea. Where? And I'd never thought of the word where, you know. So I went around the campus. And of course, there was no place to put a swimming pool. I thought, oh, that's the end of that thing. And about a week later... She called me in her office, says, I've got two pieces of paper here, they go together. She said, don't forget, these two go together. And she gave me one piece of paper, a 25-meter swimming pool. And do you know where she put that? We were renting a house next to the school. And in the, next to the house was a huge driveway. She put a 25-meter swimming pool in the driveway of the house. <laughs> you know, I wouldn't have dreamt of, of putting anything like that there, you know? And it's still there. Serves a purpose. So, so they built it. So they built it. That's where the 25-meter swimming pool went. Brilliant. And then wow. she quickly took that paper back. I said, here's the other one. And it was a five-year contract for me. <laughs> oh, absolute dream. <laughs> oh, I tell you. You know, the experience I had working for her and still do as a board member is just incredible. You know, uh, like virgin territory, you know, right. Like the Wild West, whatever you want, let's do it. You know, we had two campuses. And by the time I left, we had five campuses, you know. And even now she's thinking of another one, you know. Incredible. And in a country that's developing, you know. Oh, write a book about it. So, so, John, you're splitting your time now between um, Laos, is that right, and, and Malaysia and, and Bangkok? Yes. You know, um, I've ended up with my, dream, you know, second retirement, <laughs> where I ended up as CEO of Abyssia, the Federation of British International Schools in Asia, you know. And as a young head, my first headship in Penang, um, that's when Fabicia was formed. And, it, you know, I was one of the founding heads. And, oh, you know, the, the whole purpose of it was support was a support network for, for heads. Because, you know, as a head of a school, it sometimes is a very lonely job, you know. 
So we had this small group of heads. It was a bit like a, a gin and tonic club, you know, where we got together and had a good natter and a moan. And, and it was great for me, especially as a, a young, inexperienced head, you know. And then, of course, it grew. Uh, and as you know, uh, Lewis, you know, the, we, one of the first student activities we organised was a, a sports one, the Fabicia Games, which is now quite infamous with about, 70 schools, you know, participating in, in the primary games every year, as well as under 13s and under 15s. So, you know, as the federation grew, you know, from a small group to where it is now with close to 80 schools, wow, you know, that was the best thing that ever happened to me as a head, you know, for not just for me, but for my staff, for our students, you know. And then to end up being the first inaugural CEO of the Federation, it was a dream job, you know, because I was so passionate about what Fabicia stands for, you know. So, and, you know, coming in now on the other side of the fence, really, you know, now having to provide value for the schools and the members, um, it's fantastic. Love it. Yeah, it, it must be great, John, seeing it from its inception all the way through to what it is now. Does does leaving a legacy matter to you, John? I mean, you've got a legacy in Penang, you've, you've got a legacy in Laos, you've got your the charity schools sort of in Sri Lanka. Does does that matter to you, or is it just something that's just a byproduct of your work? No, it doesn't really matter to you. You know, you get your own satisfaction in terms of what you achieve. You know, you don't. You don't blow your own trumpet and you don't want anyone else to either. You know, you just, you know, teaching is all about giving. It, it, it's not about you. And, you know, you earn that respect. Um, so, no, I, I, I don't sort of, uh, you know, the great thing, you know, when I went to Laos, I'm, it, it couldn't have worked out better. Um, you know, you can imagine leaving uh, Penang, St. Christopher's, after 24 years. Um my successor then comes to the school. And um, the best thing that happened for me was I moved to Laos. So my successor then had free reign to develop the school in his style of leadership. And, and you know, when I go back to Penang now and seeing what he's done, how he's taking the school forward, it's fantastic, you know? You know, it's not as if, oh, I wish Mr. Jones was still here. No. You know, you've gone. It's up to somebody else now. And he's doing a great job there, you know. And so so to look at that and think, oh, wow, isn't that fantastic? And celebrate that as opposed to thinking, oh, you know, the school will never be the same without me. You should never take that attitude. You should be pleased with what you've given. And, and then you move on, you know. I think that's important. Yeah, I love that. Love that idea, John. We're going to wind it down now, John, with some with some quick fire questions. This is my this is my favourite. This one is uh, you've got a dinner party and you can have any three world leaders, dead or alive, that you want to have a little chat with. Who would they be? Well, one of them would be Dr. Mahathir. You know, the uh, prime the ex prime minister of Malaysia. He was um, leading the country during most of my time in Malaysia. And seeing how he developed Malaysia and the difference he made, uh, he was a bit of an idol for me, you know? So he would be 
sitting on my table. I had the privilege of meeting him once in Singapore. I was like a 10-year-old boy, you know, looking at my rugby hero when I met him. So he is someone I have great respect for. Um, the other one would probably be Nelson Mandela. You know, I would love to sit around a table with him and, and uh, ask him what life was like for him, you know, initially uh, in prison and to eventually end up leading South Africa, you know. So he, he would be um, around my dinner table. And then probably the third would have been the great Barry John, you know, the, the Welsh fly half. You know, because um, Barry John was uh, one of those rugby players that people still talk about. And yet he retired early, you know, he retired in his prime. So I'd love to have him around my table and say, oh, why did you do that, you know? Let's, uh, let, let's hope you and Barry provide subtitles. Say that again? <laughs> let's hope you and Barry provide subtitles. <laughs> yeah, you're right. Absolutely. <laughs> um, John... And you've been honoured by the Queen. Tell us what you were honoured by the Queen for. Well, that did come out of the blue, you know. Um, you know, as Alan said there, you know, we, we don't do the job to get sort of brownie points. Um, so, you know, when suddenly I get this letter um, asking me if I would accept this honour uh, from Her Majesty Queen, you know, I thought, wow, nearly, you know, that was an incredible year, actually, because, you know, um, I was appointed as CEO of Fabricia, dream job. Um, I, I had my first grandson and then I had my MBE, you know, so that really was just um, incredible. So, yeah, that that was something I didn't expect. And, um, uh, you know, it's interesting <laughs> as a patriotic Welshman, you know. Um, I had so many messages from my Welsh friends saying, you're not going to accept it, are you? You know, because <laughs> <laughs> it's you know, very nationalistic and <laughs> I thought, you know, hey, that's my choice, you know, and uh, uh, I haven't had it yet, so I've been a good boy for the last year until I actually go to Buckingham Palace and receive the award, but yeah, that was that was something really special, you know, and and as we said earlier, you're not in need to, to get accolades like that. But when they do come, yeah, you know, you, you, you do celebrate it. Amazing. Congratulations, yeah. John. Thanks. Top man. Last, last one from me, John. You've, obviously, you've, you've led in a number of different contexts. I'd like to now know, just from an education perspective, with COVID and everything else that's going on, you've got blank canvas to set up your perfect school, what does it look like? Um, what does it look like? You know, um, important thing in any school environment, it would have to be a happy environment. You know, you'd, you know, you'd walk in, you know, you go to schools, you know, it was interesting as, as a CEO for Bissia, when you visit schools, wow, you know, the facilities some of these schools have, just not bowl you over, you know, 500 seated theatres, Olympic sized swimming pools, you know, as a head of a school, I've never enjoyed facilities like that, you know. So I would sit with the parents of, of a, a school, say in Bangkok, and, and I would say to them, you know, 
if your child transferred to my school in Penang or in Lao, the first thing you would look around is, where's the theater? You know, where's the 50 meter swimming pool? And we wouldn't have them. Yet again, the environment your child would come to would be equal, if not better to, than the school you're currently in. And what I'm saying there is, you know, the, the culture that you develop in your school in terms of environment, uh, happiness, um, that's critical. If you haven't got those ingredients, um, you know, and I have walked into schools and I have sensed sometimes, oh, it's not a happy school. You know, that when you go into a classroom, you can always tell immediately when the children start talking to you and say, oh, hello, how are you? It, it creates that feeling. And sometimes when they look at you as a stranger, you don't get that, you know? So creating that culture in your school is more important than any facilities or curriculum or, or uh, assessments or standards. Creating that environment with your staff and your students and the rest is easy then, you know? Yeah, yeah, I love that. Love that. Thank great, you, John. A great, time. a great quote to finish, John. The rest is easy. Love that. It is actually, you know, it, 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 you know, the challenges at the moment with COVID-19, you know, I take my hat off to school leaders, to teachers working under the current environment, you know, and I see it from the outside. And I tell you, I've got the greatest respect for our profession as to how we overcome all the obstacles. You know, it's, it's amazing. Uh, and that's where you're often challenged as a teacher. As I said, courageous, out of your comfort zone, you know, which we all are at the moment. But, you know, when, when you see that, you think, wow, this is what teaching is, is all about, you know. And um, I, I think that's incredible. And, you know, the, the biggest issue now is well-being. You know, people are suffering. And they're suffering silently, you know. They're, they're not bringing it out. You know, they're away from family. Um, you know, it, it, it is a challenge now. So, you know, when I say create that happiness, to really maintain that under these circumstances is a challenge. And schools do it so well, you know. And that's what's great about our profession. <laughs> Top man, John, it is. It's tough for everybody out there, but we, we crack on, we keep our sleeves rolled up and uh, for the time being, let's yes. try and enjoy your holiday. John, thanks a lot for coming on. Really appreciate it. Hey, yeah. it's been a pleasure talking to both of you. Wish we had another hour. I've got so <laughs> many stories. I was, I was just about to say, I think there might need to be a part two. I think we've just skimmed over the surface of a, a 30 plus year career that's still in the swing of things. Uh, guys, search Infinite Leaders Live on YouTube and IGTV and please share us far and wide. Um, you can also find us at theinfinitelearners.com and on Twitter. See you next time. And John, thanks a lot again. Really enjoyed that. Hey, Alan, Lewis, thanks, pleasure to talk to both of you. Top man. <laughs>